This is Design Matters with Debbie Melman. For 16 years, Debbie has been talking with creative people about what they do, how they got to be who they are, and what they're thinking about and working on. On this episode, which was taped for Adobe Max, Jim O'Brien talks about the risks she took early in her career. I think I was too young and free and I didn't fully know the responsibilities of the world to be scared yet. (laughs) Here's Debbie, first with a couple of messages. Adobe Max 2020, the largest global creativity conference is over, but you can still watch more than 350 sessions on demand. From an inspiring look at creating a joyful life through illustration, to a deep dive into Photoshop, to quick tips for creating engaging social media videos, there's something for every creative, regardless of your skill level or area of interest. Check out all the great content online at adobe.com slash max. As a creator, it can feel like you're making stuff for practically everyone but yourself. Patreon is a creator-founded membership platform where the people who love your work can directly support it with paid subscriptions. No advertisers, no algorithms, no mainstream gatekeepers holding your paycheck. Just steady, reliable income and the freedom to make what you love. Start creating on your own terms. Sign up today at patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com. Gemma O'Brien minds her P's and Q's and her R's and S's and her B's and L's and Z's. I think she has a very special relationship with the letter G as well. In fact, she knows the alphabet about as intimately as anyone on the planet because she not only designs them, she draws them, she paints them, and she clearly loves them for their aesthetic and artistic potential. Gemma O'Brien is a designer, an illustrator, a letterer, and typographer based in Australia. Her work can be found on murals and electronic billboards in museums and galleries. And once you see it, if you haven't already, you'll fall in love with letters too. Gemma O'Brien, welcome to Design Matters. Thanks for having me, Debbie. Gemma, um, I found some really interesting tidbits in my research. And so the first question I want to ask you is if it's true that if you had to pick a song to represent the soundtrack of your life, you'd pick Wham's Wake Me Up Before You Go-Go? <laughs> oh, my God. I don't know where you found that. I forgot ever <laughs> saying that, but I feel like, yes, probably. <laughs> <laughs> I was really surprised. That's not the song I would have picked. I would have thought maybe Walking on Sunshine if you were going with an oldie, but not Wake Me Up Before You Go-Go. But I, I was also somewhat impressed, the sort of deep track. That's good. That's good. And then I also found out in an interview that you did with your boyfriend some years ago that you originally thought that Led Zeppelin was a person. Oh my God. I can't (laughs) believe that this is going to be immortalized on the internet. It's true. (laughs) I have to say that it's true that I thought that. (laughs) Oh 
That's okay. It, you know, these things happen. You're young. You know, I, I had a, a major realization several years ago when I was talking to a young person who I was appalled that they didn't know who Stevie Nicks was. And and, and I just got more and more enraged that, that she didn't know who Stevie Nicks was. And finally, I think just to appease me, she said, oh, well, wait a second. I think I know who he is. <laughs> Well, my my comeback for for when Jason, my boyfriend, found out that I I didn't know that, you know, this information was, I'm like, but you don't know who Childish Gambino is, and so that was like my, ah. my but I don't know, maybe not the same level of uh, intensity there. <laughs> <laughs> well, everybody has their the things that they're intrigued and fascinated by. Um, Gemma, how are you managing through the pandemic? You know, we were supposed to be doing this live at Adobe Max, but now that everything is happening online, we're speaking over the internet where you are in, I believe, Redfern, Redfern, Australia. Is Correct. That right? Yes. And and it's noon on Friday afternoon. And I am in Los Angeles where it is 7 p.m. on Thursday evening. So it's kind of magical. How are you managing? Um, I mean, to be honest, I feel like the world has stopped and that's like the only thing that's given me permission to stop. <laughs> like I'm just constantly traveling. This is the most time I've ever spent uh, in Sydney, in my studio, with my you know, family and friends that are here. So I feel a sense of relief, to be honest. Um, I mean, I know it's a very difficult time for so many people, but yeah, my personal experience has just been like, okay, this is a chance to stop, reflect, work out what my next move is going to be and just a chance to, yeah, I guess recover from like 10 years of going nonstop. Yeah, you've been traveling almost more than anybody I know in the design community. And your trips are rather long given that you live in Oz. So this must be a really interesting time to be thinking about what you want to do next. Absolutely. And I think the fact that you mentioned that it is flights from Australia, which is something I I knew, but I didn't really factor that in because I would see other designers speaking at lots of conferences, but often if they were in America, maybe they would all be traveling within America. So, you know, once you add a 12 to 24 hour transit period, um, it definitely started to take up a chunk of time. And yeah, it's just a whole new world for me. And I'm really both excited and a little nervous to see what the next iteration of, I guess, me and my career and also the world is going to be. Yeah. You were born in Brisbane. Your dad is a builder of beautiful homes who worked in big construction companies until he went out on his own. And your mom is a kindergarten teacher and has also taught cello and piano. Um, and I understand you grew up with chooks, which are chickens and a vegetable garden, and that you wanted to be a ballerina. <laughs> <laughs> also very good research, Debbie. It's all true. Chooks, chickens, hens, gardens. Yeah, I loved it. So it was very rural and beautiful and... Yeah, well, part of the period where the, the where the chickens were was we were living in a place called Mount Glorious, which is a little bit outside of Brisbane, but um, it's kind of like a mountain. It's not rural, but it's definitely, yeah, more closer to nature. 
It seems as if you were creative from a very young age. I read that when you were a little girl, you would make little illustrated booklets and staple them together. What kind of booklets were you making? <laughs> they were they were stories, quite bizarre stories. Like one of them was called uh, Violet's Party. And then there was another one about a businessman called Bob that's spent all his money. Like they were very zany. I would write these stories and illustrate them. And yeah, all sorts of topics. Others were just pictures of fruit. And they were all about A5 handheld size. And I, I loved it. And I've still got a lot of them, a lot of them now. I was just going to ask if, yeah. if you have any. We should, we should post some of them <laughs> to show people your, your beginnings. Um, your parents separated when you were six. Was, was that a specifically um, traumatic moment for you? Look, for a long time, I didn't think it would have had any impact on me at all. Like, I, I remember being such a happy-go-lucky kid and, you know, once they separated and throughout school, they were always friends. So in my mind, it was like, you know, my parents have separated, but there wasn't any animosity. We would spend most of our time with mum, the weekends with dad. And yeah, it seemed fine, but I think it probably did impact me. But I'm not exactly sure how and what that looked like. Um, I definitely had a very, you know, lucky and happy childhood. So I think, you know, both my parents, although they weren't together, were very supportive in different ways and are very different people. So have like given me whole entire different worlds and ways of seeing things. And so, yeah, I think it probably impacted me, but I'm not, maybe I'm still to find that out in therapy. <laughs> Yeah, it takes a while. Some of the, the full impact of some of my early experiences didn't really hit me till I was in my 20s and 30s. And I believe you're still in your 20s. Is that right? Oh, my God. Thank you, Debbie. I'm 33. <laughs> oh, my. I'm so sorry. <laughs> Heavens. <laughs> um, Gemma, when you were in high school, I... I read that you were highly academic and you got really good grades, but you also ran cross country. You were the sports captain. So you had quite a lot of range. What did you think you wanted to do professionally at that point in your life? Yeah, throughout high school, I was definitely very extracurricular activities. It was academic, but then, you know, also sports. And I even did, I did art as well, but I think my thing in high school was that I was going to be a lawyer. Why? Where did that originate? I can only pinpoint it to society, like or an idea about what is a good career or a smart career, because I definitely don't remember anyone specifically saying, you know, you need to do this or you should do this. But I feel that there was a sense that because I was, you know, top of each class that I was doing, that art or design just would be like wasting that in a way. And I don't know where I got that idea, but it definitely drove my ambitions. And, you know, in grade 12, which is like the senior year of high school, I remember I would be like so focused on the final exams and getting this final score. And I was very academic and I was like, I'm going to be a lawyer. And then that kind of dissipated after actually I graduated and went into university, but I don't know where that came from, but that was definitely where my head was at. So you went to school assuming you were going to be a lawyer on track to be a lawyer, and then you had an epiphany and you decided no, and you dropped out. 
Yeah, I dropped out. What was that? I mean, that to me, in, in looking over sort of the arc of your life, it feels like the first time where you had a sort of reckoning about who you were and what you were going to be. Mm-hmm. What was that like at that time for you? Yeah, I think you're totally right that it was a moment of reckoning. Like I kind of tell this story so many times in design conferences, you know, I dropped out of law school and became a designer and it's just like a story. But like, I think you're right that at that moment, I was living with a boyfriend at the time. I was going to law school. I was still doing the right thing. I was getting good grades, but I knew that something wasn't right. And I think it was just the beginnings of like trying to connect with who I actually really was. And To be honest, looking back now, that was over 10 years ago, it was like I took a leap like this far, but there was still a lot that was left. And I think for me, that was like, I'm not going to be an artist. I'm going to be a designer because designer is is a little bit more respectable or maybe I can make more money. It was a little bit safer. So I... I just remember looking up. I didn't even know really what graphic design was. You know, you hear people say, I wanted to design my favorite band's record cover. And that was like a story that I'd heard. And so I started to look up courses and I found a university that offered a design degree and I just made the switch. And I remember the first few years of that course, it was all the preliminary, you do life drawing and point line plane. And I was just in heaven and I loved it so much. And I just, yeah, it was really, really awesome. Interesting that you brought up that quote about the record covers, because I did read another interview where you brought that up, but it was actually a bit longer. And you said, so many designers either want to design a record cover for their favorite band, or they want to be an artist. Graphic design is the second best option. And I was probably in that category. (laughs) So here you were dropping out of law school, but you were still unwilling to sort of take that gamble into being what you really in your heart thought you wanted to be. What do you think was holding you back? I don't know. I think I think in many ways I still hold myself back. <laughs> and I feel like I've kind of pushed so far from that spot of graphic design and what that looks like and then typography and murals and whatnot. But I think there's always a little bit of self-doubt and, you know, a lot of people always tell me, oh, like you've done all these things or you're so brave or you you are yourself. And But then in my true inside, I feel like, but I've got more, like there's more to give. And I think it's just a, that line keeps on getting drawn again and again, no matter what. Yeah, that bravery line is a is a hard line because it's really only brave before you do it. It's not that brave when you're doing it. (laughs) And especially if what you end up doing in that first jump is only part of what you hope to be able to achieve. I struggle with this all the time. I mean, Roxanne always teases me that as soon as I reach some goal that I wanted, I just raise the bar and I don't even allow myself to enjoy that that Mm. moment. But I think it comes from many decades of, of doing that and saying, oh, I'm going to do this because it's safer and I'll be more secure and I'll be able to take care of myself and, you know, all the things. All the yeah, things. yes. You've said that you didn't discover typography until your first year of law school. And even then you thought that the idea of working every day with only lettering and typography wasn't possible. What kind of design were you envisioning doing when you first applied to Queensland College of Art? 
Mm. Yeah, so I think it was, I went to the Queensland College of Art and typography wasn't really a part of my interests. And it was only later when I moved to Sydney and switched to the College of Fine Arts here that I discovered typography. But I think I was imagining something more like graphic design, but also maybe more illustrative or picture-based. I hadn't noticed the design of words at that point. So I was definitely coming from more a traditional art background of looking at like imagery. And so it wasn't until that was brought to my attention that this is such a big part of of image making and the text is an image in itself that it just opened the floodgates to a whole new world. What did your application look like for Queensland, given that you hadn't been a practicing designer, Mm. weren't really doing design work in high school? I was really curious, what what did your application look like? Well, you know what? I don't think that you had to submit a portfolio. I think I switched purely based on my academic um, grades. And because they were still quite good in law school, I was able to make that switch without having to share any work. This is this is from memory. Ah. I don't... Because I can't remember putting together portfolios. So I think it was just using those points to cross over. And you were there for one year, I believe, and then went on to... You moved to Sydney and got your communications and design degree at the College of Fine Arts. And initially, understand you were more interested in illustration, drawing, and graphic design as opposed to typography. But all of that changed when you took a letterpress studio class. And so for the the few people on the planet that might not be fully familiar with your history, tell us about that moment, because it does seem like another one of those moments that sort of changed everything for you moving forward. Absolutely. So there was a letterpress studio in the university and one of the tutors who was teaching, uh, I think he might have been teaching a typography course, was also doing his PhD in Australian printing histories. And so he had extra access to the letterpress studio and would teach us. And then I got to see this firsthand and kind of become an apprentice letterpress um, student of his where I learned to set type by hand. And I guess this was, it feels so funny thinking about this now so long ago and it was such a physical thing and I think that physicality was the thing that made me interested in it because you know I think the one typography class I had done or an InDesign class um, you know using digital fonts it hasn't hadn't resonated in any meaningful way so suddenly all of these physical terminology all these things were real and I was touching an individual letter A I was pulling out the drawer of Helvetica And it just was so much fun, you know, and it was, you're in that space and you're really focused and you're learning history as you pick something up. And I think it was the full experience that drew me in. And yeah, from that point forward, I just couldn't unsee like letters in the environment. I would see a street sign and there would be, the N would be backwards and I'd be telling everyone I was with. And it was, you know, hypermania. And it was before it... Instagram and it was before there were all these spaces and um, places online where other people who were interested in it would come together. There were a few of those coming out. But so it really felt like this secret world that I was uncovering and then diving into the history behind it and the way that it linked so much to just like human life and language and culture. It just seemed like something that I could be interested in forever. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there is something so wonderfully tangible about it. I never had 
taken any letterpress classes, had never experienced doing any letterpress until earlier this year at a workshop at Indiana University. And I was sort of just waiting for it to happen, you know, <laughs> like, okay, the epiphany, everybody's so into letterpress and they're buying all these letterpress printers and it's going to happen. And it was like, okay, well, that was fun, you know. <laughs> I have more fun with my Apple Pencil and I felt so guilty and so, I felt so cheap and so, like I'd, I'd somehow cheated on my discipline somehow. Uh, but I, I, I feel like that maybe you'd heard the story so many times that then it's like going to the Eiffel Tower and then you're there and you're in the line <laughs> for the Eiffel Tower and you're like, is this that great? And I don't know. Well, I don't know. I saw the Eiffel Tower. The Eiffel Tower actually did really surprise me because of how metal it was <laughs> and how strong it looked. And mm. I didn't really feel that. It always looks so delicate in some yes. ways. You know, the curves are so clean and almost slim. And then in real life, it's like big. Also, the Tower of Pisa, which I saw recently, I had no idea it was so large. Oh. It's so big. And it's really, really leaning. Yeah. But there you have it. <laughs> Your, your first graphic design job was in Brisbane during your time at Queensland at a small studio called Vox Creative. Vox Creative, yeah. Then when you moved to Sydney, you worked at a lighting shop and also sold flowers at a market. So did you work all the way through school? Did you pay your own way and take it all on yourself? Yeah. So because when I had moved to Sydney, I'd moved with a boyfriend and he had a job. And so it was kind of like Sydney was a bigger city than Brisbane. What opportunities could it have? And so I went along and then we separated. And so I was living by myself in a studio. And I think I was able to get some support in Australia. There is like amazing systems with university where you can kind of pay the debt later. I needed money to live and I just wanted to I guess I wanted to be really independent and so I would literally do anything and, I mean, selling flowers was actually one of my favourite jobs probably still to this day, but it was a nice little uh, break from, you know, being inside and being on a computer and working and, yeah. Now, when you were in school, and I don't know which came first, you started a blog called For the Love of Type, but you were also the president <laughs> of the For the Love of Type club. And so I didn't know if you created the club and then had a blog or if the club, you know, was sort of much bigger and you joined and then happened to make the blog for them. So, so give us the backstory on that. So the blog definitely came first. And to be honest, I think that the club was purely uh, administrative thing that I needed to do in university to apply for design and art grants. So... Oh, so you were the only member of the club. You were the president and only member. <laughs> yes. I maybe had a secretary just for the forms that was one of my best friends. But yes, it was it was just me. So it was really the blog that came first. And yeah, this kind of coincided with that time in the letterpress studio with this newfound passion. And so it was the space online that felt most accessible to share my experiences and to share my enthusiasm and things that I would see, I guess the same way that people use a lot of other social media nowadays. But it was also my entry point to this world of people who are interested in type and a way to engage in that community as well. 
in your second year graphics class, you were assigned an anti-graffiti campaign and you decided to create a video of you writing all over your body with a black Sharpie. And the video in your blog, For the Love of Type, was spotted by the marketing manager of a font shop in Berlin, who also ran a popular blog called Font Blog. Love the naming. Um, he wrote a blog post in German with the translated headline, Amateur Designer Has Sex with Letters. It exploded, it went viral, and it was both a very, I think, positive experience for you and a very negative experience for you. So so talk a little bit about what happened. And, and before you do that, I just want to say that at the time, I saw that. I saw the, the brouhaha online about it, but I had no idea that it was you now, the person I know. I just saw this filed it away somewhere. We met, we've grown to be friends over the years. We've engaged in various professional endeavors together, never knowing until I did the research for this show <laughs> that that girl was this girl. Never knew, well, never knew. It doesn't even really look like you anymore, even though you are indeed covered with type. Um, it, it, I had no idea. And I, my jaw dropped when I was looking at, you know, Gemma O'Brien images on on Google, I was like, no, this can't possibly be her. And then it was. That is so funny that you say that because that was in some ways intentional. Like there was a period when I started to share my work later in my career where I really did not want to be associated um, with, with this university project that I did where I covered my body in type. And I actually remember meeting you and I feel like maybe you wrote something about it or there was some, I remember I your name I did write about it. I did mentioned. write about it on my <laughs> blog at the time, but not knowing it was you. That is, yeah. So I remember your name mentioned, I think one I went to try and see if I could find it, but I couldn't. And then I forgot about it until, you know, also today as well. So, I mean, yeah, it was me. And this was, you know, I was 20 years old. And at the time, I thought, this is a great idea for my university project. And I'd also, in high school and in the early years of university, I had done some modeling, um, which is, I'm just going to add this in here because I feel like it's relevant to my experience with this project. And so right before that, I had decided that I was going to quit doing any modeling. It didn't feel like it was me. And I started my new life as this artist designer. And this felt like a great viral artist designer thing to do, you know? And so I'd cut my hair short and you know, there was so much of this experience of like having to have your body in a particular way and having never being able to change your hair and all these things with modeling. And so in many ways, this was like an expression of my excitement for, you know, typography and lettering. And then in other ways, it felt like almost like a rebellion against this thing that had it wasn't a big part of my life, but I think it impacted the way that I saw myself and the way that I interacted. And so I did this project and, you know, it became, I never thought that anything would come out of it. I put this video online. I got my friend who was studying digital media to film me, you know, walking through writing the, with this text or writing this text on me. And I'd put it on YouTube so that my tutor could market. And it was kind of pre the concept of viral being really big. 
And so I just yes. put it up there and it got a few views when the lecturer assessed it. And then just in the coming weeks, it blew up. And, you know, this blog post came up and people were emailing me. And to be honest, it's a bit of a blur. I can't even really remember, like, Again, I've told the story so many times of of the of Jürgen Siebert from Font Shop writing about it and there being this thing happening online, but I can't really remember the details of what was being said. And I do think back to that period when I was then invited over to Berlin to speak at the conference and in my mind it was like oh my God, you know, this is a big step in the world of graphic design to speak at a conference. I feel so lucky to have this happening to me and I wanted to do a really good job and I wanted to share a story about something where I had knowledge but knowing that I was not yet a proper designer in any way and I didn't have any clients and so I really wanted to do a good job. So I went over to Berlin and I made a documentary about Australian graphic design that I shared in my talk. And, you know, it was this crazy experience. Looking back now, I feel weird. Like, I feel like, was this, was I a gimmick? You know, this young girl covering her body, you know, scantily clad. And, and it feels like a bit of a weird experience. But at, at the same time, it was definitely a stepping stone for me in my career. And so then when I came back to Australia, I'd spoken at the conference and I really, I think I took a step back from that world a little bit. I actually got invited to speak at Type at Berlin the following year, directly after that. And I remember saying no and thinking, well, actually I need to just, I want to go back to my path of like experiencing my career as it naturally would occur and developing clients and developing a way of practicing that's less about a gimmicky YouTube thing and more about me just taking the steps that any designer might in their career. Well, one of the things that I thought was so interesting was how you handled the criticism. Um, part of what resulted in your getting the invitation to Typo Berlin was the writer of the original post criticizing you, ultimately feeling like he was wrong. He at the time mm. accused you of being derivative of Stefan Sagmeister and then ultimately wrote to apologize for his assessment. Exactly, yeah. A lot of people disagreed with his assessment at the time. Mm. And his invitation, it seems to me, not not having been there and, and not, again, even knowing that this was you at yeah. the time it was all happening, um, it seemed like a big deal for somebody to apologize at that time for online bullying, which is really, in a lot of ways, what it was. That is true, actually. And I think, you know, the, I, the way that I actually had this direct contact then um, after the story had come out was that he had messaged me on Facebook and basically said, you know, I'm reconsidering some of the things that I wrote and maybe you've got something interesting to share. Um, would you like to speak? And so I do think for all the context and everything that's happened, it was an interesting outcome yeah, it definitely catapulted me out into, the, not even just in the graphic design world, but into the world in general. It was the first time I'd travelled overseas. You know, I went to Berlin by myself and not only was I going by myself, it was the first time I was doing a talk in front of an audience of like a thousand people. And you people. were 21, Gemma. <laughs> you were 21. When I was 21, I was working in a pizza shop. You know? <laughs> 
It's amazing. And it's so, truly amazing. Yeah, I mean, at the time, I definitely, like, I felt like I was rising to the challenge. And looking back now, my little brother is 21, and I'm like, oh, okay, I was a baby. <laughs> Well, what's so interesting is that you can see a lot of the conceptual seeds of who you became in just the still images. I actually found links to the video, but they're all, it's all gone now, lots Mm. of 404s, but I still, you can still see the photos. And so you could see the sort of conceptual seeds of who you've become, but you also see how much you've grown and how your craft has developed. And that was exciting for me to see. You know, you weren't just born this way. You really worked hard to get to a level of craft that you have now. You said that that experience led you to many other commercial opportunities, but you sometimes wish that your work didn't reach the world until you had more time to hone your skills. Do you look back on it now with both a sense of gratitude and any embarrassment or are you just like, eh, it is what it is, cool? I think a little bit of both. You know, it's definitely part of me and it's part of my experience and I still, I know myself in that moment when I made the decision to do this and, and I know that I get that feeling now of like, I'm going to do this crazy thing or and I still have that same like energy I just think now I have like more awareness of how when you release something into the world, it's out there. It takes on its own life. Sometimes I think you'd love to hone your craft and then put this perfect thing out there. But then at the same time, I do like this idea of developing your skill in public or like, you know, going through those experiences where people can see your growth. And I know that there's other artists and designers who I've followed their work for a long time. And I love seeing where someone starts and then where they end up and everything in between. Yeah, I think there are pros and cons. and But I do definitely distance myself from it. Like, I don't really talk about it when I do. It used to be something that when I did talks, I would include this in my, like, origin story. Like, this is my big break. And I think... It was a part of it, but I don't know if it was actually the thing that made my career now. I think it was more yeah. the, the hours and the the work and the craft. And yeah, I think I just yeah. wanted no, to be I, taken I remember, a bit more. Yeah. I remember when we were evaluating the new visual artists the year that I was the editor-in-chief of Print Magazine, we had the uh, honor of choosing who the new visual artists of the year were going to be. Actually, I was the editorial director. Zach Pettit was the editor-in-chief at that that year. And you were one of the applicants. You were one of the people we were considering. And I looked at your work and and we had a very long discussion about whether to feature you on the cover because we had 15 people that we were considering. And at no point in any of that consideration did anyone know that that was the same person who had done that work back then. <laughs> so so um, probably not a great idea to talk about it in this podcast. <laughs> well, look, it's okay. No, 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 no. I'm totally... It's fine. I have one question about that work. How long did it take you to get all that Sharpie ink off? Surprisingly, not that long. Like you just use an exfoliator and it, you know, it came off. (laughs) Talk about the origin story of Mrs. Eves. Oh, this one, this one I, I, I like. And, you know, it's still my Instagram handle. But this was also around the time of discovering Letterpress 
and starting my For the Love of Type blog, there was, you know, this part of me that wanted to write under a pseudonym for some reason. And I can't remember when I initially, I think I came across Mrs. Eve's The Emigre font, which was designed in the 90s. And then from that point, went back and read the story about Sarah Eve's um, who was the housewife to Baskerville. And I guess to me, she was like one of these early women in the world of typography, which seemed so male dominated. And so I thought this is a cool name to write my typography blog from the point of view. And so it kind of became my pseudonym that I used online and still to this day. In your final year of school, you worked as a design intern at Animal Logic, which after graduation became your first full-time job. Um, One of your first and few. I mean, you really didn't work nine to five for very long. Did you like working nine to five? I think it was good that I had that nine to five experience like so soon after coming out of design school because it did teach me a lot about how business, like big businesses that work in creative industries need to operate with, you know, producers and timelines and, you know, how things that you do in your practice can impact other people on a project. I think it was good for me to see that world, but I definitely am not a nine to five friendly person. (laughs) Like, you know, you're also a night owl from what I understand. Well, yeah. I mean, when I was working there, I was definitely a night owl. So I'd do the nine to five and I would work and I would still, you know, give it my all during that time. But I feel like the best ideas I had, the best creative period was definitely at night. And so I would be working there during the day and coming up with stuff at night. And yeah, I just hated being confined into a space. I love the outdoors. I love if the sun's out, I want to be outside. So I would try and like, you know, maximize that and then work um, the rest of the time. You also worked at the firm Toby and Pete and Fuel VFX, who did a lot of technical work for Iron Man. And while you were there, they went bankrupt and everyone lost their jobs. At that point, I believe you realized you had a choice to either find another job where you inevitably would not be 100% satisfied or to try to go out on your own. And you decided to go out on your own. How hard was that decision? Were you scared? To be completely honest, I think I was too young and free and I didn't fully know the responsibilities of the world to be scared yet. (laughs) I mean... I started my first business that way too at 27 (laughs) or 26. I had no idea what I was doing and no idea what I was in for. Yeah, because it just felt like... I mean, I think it's interesting because I say I wasn't scared, but at the same time, I didn't leave that job when I was there before they went bankrupt. I didn't kind of, even though I maybe wanted to, I didn't take that step. It was only when the opportunity came and it made it a little bit easier, was I like, okay, let's go. And I, I think I was excited. And this was also the time I started going back and selling flowers as like kind of a backup gig to make a bit of cash. But do you make any money selling flowers? I made enough to pay the rent and I I can't even really, it was enough that it was like a buffer, you know, that if I didn't immediately get enough work, it was just like a safety net in in a way. But I don't think I was scared and it was really, I probably think the next turning point in my life from the law school dropout to this point was definitely like the new phase 
And when I think of my career now, it kind of starts then. Yeah. Yeah, I think it was, again, this feeling of being excited and being like, what can I do? I've got all these ideas. I've been working for big companies where while I enjoyed it, it wasn't my all my own work. It was fitting into that bigger picture. And suddenly I was back in the driver's seat kind of taking the reins. Had you been doing a lot of your own self-generated work when you weren't at your nine-to-five jobs? I had started doing freelance work that was more back into this space of lettering and illustration. And it was freelance. And I'd started to get a few inquiries from uh, illustration rep in Australia. And so there were some wheels that were in motion. I wasn't doing a huge amount of like personal artwork, but it was definitely little bits and pieces outside of my nine to five job. Your first big freelance gig was with Woolworths, which is one of the biggest supermarket chains in Australia. How did you get that job and what did they hire you to do? So this was for their Christmas campaign and they were, you know, it was kind of at this period when a lot of more illustrative and decorative lettering was entering into the world of um, advertising and It's funny when I look at these supermarkets now, they're all pared back and there's no flourishes in their um, advertising. But for this Christmas, they really wanted something that fitted in that kind of world. And so they had seen my work and reached out to the illustration reps, Jackie Winter Group, and said, we're interested in working with Gemma. And at the time, I wasn't on their books as an illustrator, but they said, hey, like, they're interested in your work. Do you want to do this together as a kind of a trial Um, relationship. And then if it goes well, we'll kind of sign you. So yeah, it was a series of illustrated lettering that went across stores across Australia. And, you know, it was the first time, I think something that I had created, you know, people, my family in other cities and people who I knew could see. And it was a brand that people knew, you know, and it was the first time there was a budget that I was like, oh my God, do people get paid like this much to do? It It was just the beginning of a lot of um, eye-opening experiences into this world. Well, since then, you've worked with some of the biggest brands in the world. You've taken your fascination with typography and built an extraordinary career around drawing letters for Apple, Tiffany & Company, Canon, Google, Adidas, Nike, Playboy Magazine, Adobe, The New York Times. Your work has even taken over the billboards in Times Square. Well done, Gemma. Congratulations. It's a really spectacular career you're making for yourself. Thank you, Debbie. Oh, my pleasure. You still do a lot of your own self-generated work. It seems like your entire body of work is a mix of both work that you're doing for yourself and work that you're doing for clients. How much of your workload is one or the other? It's, it's not defined clearly. I'm definitely not one of those people that's like, I'm going to do 30% personal work, 70% commercial and, and that sort of thing. It definitely goes with the flow of what's happening. And I think a lot of the stuff that I share now is a bit more specific. So there might be commercial projects that I'm not necessarily sharing. I might be sharing more of the large scale murals or personal pieces that I do. I think that the last two years have been dominated by commercial work. 
but a lot of it's still dictated by my, I guess, my personal style. So over the years, it's shifted where it's become more aligned, where there's, you know, less differentiation. It might just come down to what the phrase is, you know, whether it's a slogan for a company or whether it's something I come up with myself. So yeah, it changes, but I definitely want to start now with this space that we have in this new time to be doing a lot more, you know, going back to these type illustration art pieces that merge between the worlds and focusing on that a little bit more. Do you have any sense of what that might be? I've experimenting? Got, well, I've got this new space that I'm in, which is, it's like a miniature gallery. You're not in the attic anymore. I'm not in my attic anymore. So I'm in this new space and it's got big white walls. It's basically like a small gallery. And the reason I got this space was so that I could start painting big things like in a more relaxed way, like not necessarily flying into a city and painting for two weeks and getting out and which is the way that a lot of the murals have been done in the last few years. So it's, I really, in the next year, I want to fill this entire space and hopefully you'll see what that looks like. (laughs) And are you also looking to have a retail component at that space? That's not like one of my goals right now. Maybe there would be some kind of elements that would be for sale, but I think I like to think of it more as it's almost like an open studio. So when I show people, it'll be like they're looking into my studio as opposed to coming into an art gallery to buy a piece and be more experiential. Right. Yeah. And is it a live work environment or is it specifically to live? It's it's actually just to, well, to work. So the first... Uh, actually to work. Yes. Yeah, that was the right question. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so my boyfriend and I live in a separate place and it's the first time also that I've had this separation between living and working and a dedicated workspace. So that's been interesting as well. How has that changed your approach to work? I know that when the graphic journalist and illustrator and writer Wendy McNaughton separated her spaces, her living from working, that that changed her approach to her work. And I know that that's done similar things to Jessica Hish and to Lisa Congdon. Mm. And I'd sort of see you as four of the most prolific letterers, journalists, writers, artists um, working today. Well, I feel very lucky to be in that group of names. Um, but I think it's it's a funny one for me because the attic that I was, this space I was in when I started freelancing, it was very much wrapped up in like my identity and my experience of being an artist and designer. And, you know, I loved that space and it felt like it was a visual representation of like my mind almost. So taking the step to have this separate studio was like trying to expand that in a way, trying to push myself. But the reality is that as soon as I got here, I was just traveling constantly. So even though I had this amazing space, the first year of having it, I was away almost every every month. So I think now will be the real time to see what's going to happen because I'm actually here. I'm able to set new routines. Um, it definitely did, has started to change me not being a night owl. <laughs> um, I try and come in, I'm not strict with my hours, but I try and come in, in more regular people <laughs> time zones. Um, but I, I think there will always be a part of me that wants to go deep into the zone of like 
working intensely on something and having to be completely focused such that maybe there will be periods that I'll spend here and I'll sleep the night, you know. So I'm as excited as you are to see like how this is going to change the way that I work. And yeah, I think that taking away that travel is, is going to be a big influence as well because I didn't really get to create new work for a couple of years because I was just on the go. So it's a lot of change. Yeah, you were also working very much, it seemed, up against constant deadlines. Yes. And so now being in a place where you might not have as many deadlines, it might be interesting to see what your brain constructs next. Uh, yes. Seems like a really interesting time for the next chapter of your career. Yeah. No, I definitely think that this is going to be, I don't know, I've actually taken three months off taking on any new commercial work between now and the end of the year. So this is all fitting into what we're talking about of, I guess, seeing what happens. And I think, I don't know, I don't know what it's going to look like, but I like that because it really did feel like for a point there where I was like, I had my whole year booked out and I was then like going through the motions and it wasn't that I didn't enjoy it. I loved it. And I love travel and being inspired and running at a hundred miles an hour. And, but I think this is going to be a different kind of experience. And so, yeah, I think that will definitely be reflected in the work. Will you be making murals in your own space or are you looking to create more fine art? Talk about what kind of work you envision doing. Yeah. So I think one of the big things with the murals that I created when I was traveling is they were always limited to an installation period, whether it was like in a gallery or in a, you know, a design studio, it would be like, we need it done in this two week period. So often I would find that the, the style, the final artwork was limited by could it be achieved in a two-week window? And, you know, I would play around with that by getting assistance or, like, having different ways to limiting the colour palette. And so basically what I want to see is what do I get to create at a large scale when I don't have to limit the time it is painted in? So could it be that I'm working on something else and then each day I get to paint for four hours on a mural that then after six months of doing that it's this thing that's kind of grown a bit more organically and something where the experience for me is a little bit more like an artist's practice as opposed to you know waiting for designs to be approved and and that more graphic design process so I don't know exactly what it'll look like but I'm not as much interested in fine art, you know, selling canvases at this point, but I have thought about the idea of, you know, could I place canvases or, you know, pieces of card onto the actual space so then even if the mural doesn't live forever, there are these elements that could be pulled out as, a, you know, a long-lasting piece of art. Do you think that your approach to mural making might be different without an audience? There seems to be a big performative... Mm aspect of mural making that would be different in a studio? Yes, I think that is definitely a factor. And I think there is an element of performance in the things that I do. And I think that excites me in a way. Like I think that the idea of people seeing it or being it seeing painted definitely inspires me in a way that it will make me work harder or faster or in a different way. But my studio actually has a 
like a roller door that's glass on street level and then a movable oh. wall that can be closed or open. So if I want privacy, I can close it. And if I want people to see, they could essentially look in. And so I do like the idea that maybe there would be periods, you know, Fridays from 7 till 10 p.m. you could walk past and see me working away. It's a little bit more removed than, say, a lot of the things that I was doing where I might be working in a, you know, a shop that's opening and I'd be painting a live mural, which, while it's okay, I feel like I would enjoy it more in a studio where I have a bit more control. Do you feel that having people watch you make things with their hands changes their minds about the notion of technology taking over our our lives and our communication skills? Yeah, I think that there's something that will always be intriguing about watching people do things with their hands. And this is something that I started to notice when I started to play around with calligraphy and brush pens and sharing this online. Like the response that I would get when I would share this kind of handmade stuff was like way more than a digital image or the final piece. And I just love thinking about why that is, or even like, you know, cooking videos or anything where it's feels like really, really human. And, you know, I went through a phase of being obsessed with the idea that like the future of design and the future of lettering is human. And I think I've shifted in that way because I think technology, it changes so quickly and it can fulfill a lot of our needs that we have in just as good a way as, you know, the real thing. But there's always going to be something that technology can't do. Like I went to the dentist yesterday and I was thinking about in this time of like where everything seems so technologically advanced and, you know, I've got an Apple Watch that's tracking my heartbeat and everything, but yet you still need someone to like go in there with their hands and like do things to your teeth because you're a human (laughs) thing, you know? Like it felt so like real (laughs) and that's always going to exist. I was thinking that your work is the evidence that we need to prove that cursive type should still be taught in school. You know, they're not teaching script anymore in elementary schools in the United States. And I'm horrified by this, horrified. And I think everybody should look at your work as evidence of the reason why we must still continue to teach cursive writing. I have a few more questions for you, Gemma, and then I'm going to let you go. In an interview with Vince Frost on his podcast, Design Your Life, he asked you if you thought you had designed your life. And you replied that you think your life has designed you, which stopped me in my tracks. So I want to ask, do you feel that you've made very conscious choices to live the life that you have now? Or do you feel like it really has been more random? Hmm. I don't think that I've made conscious decisions. <laughs> there is a very strong feeling in me, especially now looking back, having this time to reflect, that I have said yes. Like I'm very optimistic to opportunities. I'll say yes to a lot of things. But I think that I've been doing that for so long that it did take me on this journey. I do think there are moments where I do take a step back and think, is this what I want to do? But I do... I don't know. It doesn't mean that it's bad by any means. I think that I've just gone with the flow. I'm not like a five-year planner. I'm not someone that's like, I'm going to have this. But it's almost as though I have a sense of 
what I want to do or what I want to be doing in the future, but I never articulate it. I don't really tell anybody. I just kind of slowly work towards that and keep on doing that in a, in a way that it doesn't feel very specific or on purpose. But I think I want to change that now. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, it seems like you're at another sort of cross in the road. Yeah. And it'll be interesting to see which directions you go in. So I have two last questions. Um, first, I read that you have issues with the double barrel lowercase g. <laughs> what kind of issues do I have? Like I don't like the look of it? <laughs> that it was a difficult letter for you. Wow. I actually maybe, really maybe like Maybe you've evolved it. since then. Oh, okay. <laughs> I think it's really unique. Hmm. I'm and the, and the double G combination you found tr- problematic as well. Oh, it might have been I find it problematic to do like a brush script it, with two Gs together. And I don't like the way okay. they're like in goggles. <laughs> mm. Gaggle, goggle, slogging. Like there's, a, there's a lot going on <laughs> visually, you know. There's a lot happening there with two Gs in a row. Okay, that's good to know. Good to know. And my last question is this. I understand that you once flew in a helicopter with the heir to the Walmart fortune in order to get some beer. Gemma O'Brien, what was that about? Well, it's exactly what you said. So I was was on an artist residency in Utah. And as you may know that there's I, I, there was maybe I don't know if there's no uh, liquor stores in Utah. I think that it there there's They're very limited. strict rules and regulations. Yeah. Yes, and so I was on this artist residency. The heir of the Walmart fortune came to the artist residency because there was other things happening in this space, and he wanted some beer. He had a helicopter. He said, "Who wants to come?" <laughs> and so me and my friend Marshall and a couple of other people that could fit went in the helicopter. We flew over Bear Lake into Idaho, landed on the tarmac, and then we're like, okay, there's a liquor store one, one mile from the, from the tarmac, but how are we going to get there? We just landed the helicopter. And there was a car that was just there, like an airport car, and thought maybe the keys will be in there. So in above the mirror, <laughs> behind, like above the steering wheel, sure enough, the keys were in there. So off we went. <laughs> we drove the airport car to the liquor store, picked up some beers, came back, drank one on the tarmac, and then flew in the helicopter back from Idaho to Utah. <laughs> Did anybody notice the car was missing? Well, we ret- I think that the car was there specifically for that purpose, for people who have private, <laughs> <laughs> private planes of and course. helicopters. What am I thinking? Oh, yeah. <laughs> we returned it to where we got it from and then flew back and there was like this amazing sunset. It was very surreal, a very surreal experience. Gemma. Thank you so much for making such beautiful work with words. And thank you so much for joining me today on Design Matters. Thank you, Debbie. It's been a pleasure. You can see Gemma O'Brien's work and even buy some of it on her website, shop.gemmaobrien.com and on Instagram at Mrs. Eves 101 This is the 16th year we've been podcasting Design Matters, and I'd like to thank you for listening. And remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Melman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon.
Design Matters is produced by Curtis Fox Productions. The show is recorded in non-pandemic times at the School of Visual Arts Masters in Branding program in New York City, the first and longest-running branding program in the world. The editor-in-chief of Design Matters Media is Zachary Pettit, and the art director is Emily Wyland.